We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 today. We're going to work our way through the entire chapter. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dig in. Father, we love you, and we love you so very much. And we thank you for all the wonderful gifts that you have poured out upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And thank you, Lord. It's amazing to consider that every good thing that we have received from you, Father, came at the cost of your Son dying upon the cross so that we would be beloved children of our Heavenly Father. And now you can freely and delightfully pour out blessings upon us because of that, because of the, the finished work of the cross. And so, Lord, I ask that you would bless the service today. I pray that as we enter into your word, that your Holy Spirit would be moving in the hearts and the minds of all the folks that are here today. For the folks in this room who don't know you, God, they're, they're searching, they're seeking. I pray that they would be encouraged. Holy Spirit, I pray you would convict them, convict them and draw them to, to uh, Jesus. And I pray for the believers that are here but are struggling or hurting. pray that today they would receive a word of encouragement, that they would be filled afresh by the Spirit and that they would be ministered to by your word. I pray for all of the believers in here, God. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would learn more about you today. I pray that we would fall more in love with you as we learn more about you. I pray that you would uh, transform us, Lord, conform us into the glorious image of your Son through the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We believe in the power of the Word to change lives by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, please move in this place today. And Father, above all, be glorified pray that you would receive honor and glory as we've come here to humble ourselves before your word. So use me, I pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so you'll notice on your notes I titled this, God Steps In. God Steps In. Because in all reality, God does. He steps in. He intervenes in the affairs of men and women. Praise God for that. Praise God that our Lord cares and that He is intimately acquainted with us, where we're at, where we've been, where we're going, and that God does intervene in our lives. Even when we are not seeking God, God is seeking us. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. How glorious is that? And there is this idea, it's called deism. And these would be folks who do believe in the existence of some sort of spiritual power or even a god they may call him or it but they believe that he was uh active in creation he created all things and now is completely removed from it we can't know him we can't interact with him he's not involved in the details and the affairs of our our lives he's simply removed he is a, a god that is afar off but not at hand and we know that if you believe the Bible and the God of the Bible, nothing could be further from the truth. And that is one thing that we're going to see very clearly today as we look at this chapter. We're going to see Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul the Apostle, and we're going to see how he was doing his thing. He was so convinced that he was doing the right thing, the righteous thing, and he was doing it with all of his might. 
And he found himself to be fighting against God, and he didn't even know it. And then God intervened. God stopped him dead in his tracks and set him straight. And I'm thankful that God does that because he has done that for me. And he continues to do that for me. And I know that many of you in here know what I'm talking about. God has and is doing that for you. And I pray that God will do that today. Even as we are considering this chapter, this text, I know that there are people in here who need to be encountered by God. And, and some of us need to be stopped dead in our tracks. Amen? And so, uh, having said that, I, I kind of the main headings in this, this chapter I have laid out for you is God graciously intervenes. God is graciously intervening in lives. God is using people. God uses people. God is changing lives. God is preserving people. And God is working in various places. God is working all over the place. So those are going to be the kind of the main headings. I'll recap that at the end. So with it, let's get into it. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is now like a madman on a persecuting rampage. And he has gone to the authorities and he has asked for the, the right, the authority to go all the way to Damascus to basically extradite anyone he finds to be Christians and to bring them back. This is about 135 miles he's trying to go. And so that, that's kind of where we are at right now. The religious leaders there in Jerusalem are going out of their way to try to find anyone who is of the way, the Christians, and to bring them back. Men or women, it didn't matter. And Saul was merciless in this. Um, as we go through the book, we're going to learn more about this guy, Saul. And you've heard me mention already that Saul becomes Paul later. His name has changed so I won't spend too much time to today developing this, but suffice it to say, Saul was a very religious man. He was a Pharisee. He was a, a very brilliant man. And he hated the Christians. And he believed that Christianity was false. It was a false religion. It was against everything that he knew and loved. And he did everything in his power to stomp it out. And he was a madman in doing so. And he persecuted anyone and everyone who was of the way. And we're going to see a very radical change in him today. I thought it was interesting to note that the early, earliest designation of Christians was the way. That's what Christianity was referred to at this point in time. And I like that. It is a way of life. It's much more than just um, a social club or a social interaction or a building that you go to once a week. It was their whole life. They were disciples of the Lord Jesus, and that was the way uh, that they lived their lives. It was the way. Because, of course, He is the way. Amen? He's the way, the truth, and the life. All right. Well, verse 3. Still talking about Saul here. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. 
So Saul is intercepted on his way to Damascus. It seems as though he's right outside of Damascus at this point, and all of a sudden there is a bright shining light that strikes him to the ground. That's just a little side note. Oftentimes you'll hear people say that he was knocked off his horse. And the Scriptures just don't say that. And so I noticed in the commentaries, and I've heard several people mention that. It's kind of irrelevant. Just a little side note. Uh, We can assume that he was on a horse and he was traveling into Damascus. But at any rate, he got stopped dead in his tracks. He was struck down to the ground. Imagine that. You are going with all of your might to this place and you are on your way and then all of a sudden this light, it is so bright... It's, it's during the middle of the day, and he gets struck by this light. It's so bright, brighter than the sun, that he collapses to the ground. And we find out he actually is struck blind by this light. And then this voice, and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it would be easy to read into that and try to uh, discern what the tone would be behind that call. But it's interesting that we know this is Jesus speaking here. And in a couple places in the Gospels, we see Jesus call somebody by name or a place by name. When he says, Martha, Martha, you know, you're, you're busy with many things, but your sister has chosen the most important thing. Or Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, how often I would have gathered you as a, a hen does her little ones, but you would not. And so I think it's safe to say that when we we see that and then here we hear Saul, Saul, it gives us some indication that this is not a harsh tone. This is not an abusive, accusatory tone. It's one of concern. It's one of deep grief. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that's very interesting. Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Now, who was Saul persecuting? The, the, the Christians, right, the church. But Jesus said that Saul was persecuting him. And that's very fascinating to me. Jesus truly does relate with his, his people. He truly sympathizes with His people. We are told that we have a, a faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with us in every way. And uh, to do this to Jesus' people is like doing it to Jesus Himself. You know, I think about Matthew chapter 25 when it talks about, you know, the king said to the people, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And they said, Lord, when, when did we do those things? He said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And so I think that's very special. It's special to think that that's how the Lord feels about us. That whatever hurt we are going through, whatever wrong may be happening to us, the Lord feels that as if it's happening to Him. That is how closely He relates to His people, how much He cares for His people. And when the church was being ravaged the way that it it was, God cared. God was on the throne, but Jesus deeply cared and was grieved and, and felt for His people as though it was happening to Him. So take take comfort in that. You know, anyone in this room who, who may be hurting or struggling, safe to say that we have a number of you in here. You know, the Lord loves you. Jesus cares. We have a faithful and compassionate high priest who sympathizes with, with your hurts. And when you hurt, He hurts. And the Bible says that, you know, we can cast our cares upon God because God cares. Isn't that amazing? Truly, He is not just some power who's far off 
somewhere else and not here and present and intimately concerned and involved in the lives of men and women. Well, he says, who are you, Lord? That's fascinating to me. It seems like he knows who he's talking about, talking to. He calls him Lord, right? And then he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, you have to um, just think, try to put yourself in, in his sandals. And what must it be like in that moment when you realize everything that you were so sure about, everything that you were so confident in, everything that you were fighting against with all of your might, you find out you were wrong. And the reality sets in. I can't imagine what that must have been like for Saul. Everything that his life, everything that was bound up in that, everything that he had going for him in his life, everything that he had done up to that point, all the persecution consenting to the deaths of men and women, every bit of that, and all of a sudden he realizes he was wrong. You know, it's kind of fascinating. My um, my wife was, uh, you know, I asked her if I could share this. Colossians 2.8. I don't want to get this wrong, so let me just turn there. You know, when she was a, uh, a brand new believer, she had a, uh, a degree in psychology, right? And uh, someone shared this verse with her, Colossians 2.8. says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. It's amazing how God uses His Word, but as a new believer, you know, and someone who had put so much faith and trust in psychology and the philosophy of men and, and worldly wisdom, uh, so on and so forth, someone who was, uh, you know, a militant, professed atheist and, and had been so deeply indoctrinated in, in, the, um, in schools, uh, all of a sudden you're confronted with that and it hit her like a ton of bricks that she was wrong. It's amazing when God does that and the light flipped on and she realized that that was her, that she had been deceived by these things, that it wasn't true and that that warning was a, a very valid uh, warning and God kind of turned the lights on for her. And uh, that, that's amazing how the Lord did that. And God did that this day for Saul of Tarsus. And he realized that the one he was fighting against was indeed God Himself. He was fighting against the Lord. You know, how often do we do that? I think that's a good word for us. How many of us have fought against God? I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but... He says, you know, I'm the one whom you have been persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, we don't know what that means oftentimes. What in the world does that, that even mean? Well, in, a, in an agrarian society, uh, especially a place where they would often use, have livestock and, and oxen and horses and all these different things, they would know exactly what this meant. So in order to, to drive the, the beast of burden, whatever it may be, they would have a goad, which would be a long pointy stick that they would use to drive the, the animal forward. And so the language here, basically what he's saying is, is as he's driving the animal forward, the animal is kicking back against the, the prick, as it is uh, said, I think, in the King James Version. Kicking against the goad. And that's what Saul has been doing. Evidently, God has been coming after Saul. God has been dealing with Saul. And he said, you've been fighting against me. It's not getting you anywhere. 
It's hard to kick against the goad. It is not profitable to you. It's only painful for you. And how many of us for how many years kicked against the goad in our lives as God was trying to get a hold of us, as God was trying to draw us to Himself? How many times did we kick against that? How many times did we rebel against that? Even as a Christian in here, how many of us are still kicking against that? How many of us as God is trying to lead us, would He say to you, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. You know, it's not helpful. It's not profitable. You're fighting against God Himself. Don't do that. Well, Saul was ready to surrender. And his question was, what do you want me to do? I love that question. That's a beautiful question. What do you want me to do? This implies, this demonstrates surrender. Saul was ready to surrender. The one who had fought against the church, the one who had sought to persecute the church, is now ready to surrender to the one against whom he had been persecuting. All right, verse 7. So, we're going to see Saul is greatly humbled. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. He remained in this state. He could not see. Now the bystanders were there. They didn't see anything. They only heard a voice. And we don't know that they really understood what was going on beyond that, but Saul is blind now. This guy who was coming against the church as he was is now having to be led off by the hand because he can't even see. And so truly he was humbled by this encounter with God. And now we see this frail man having to be led off. Well, moving on, we're going to meet a character named Ananias. And I love this. This is, uh, this is beautiful. Verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So now, meanwhile, God is calling on a man named Ananias to go and to pray for Saul. What I love about this, guys, is that God uses people you know, God graciously intervenes in the affairs of men and women when we're busy doing our own thing and we are oblivious to the things of God, maybe even fighting against the things of God. God transcends. God's will supersedes. He steps into our lives. He seeks us out. He chases us down. He leaves the 99 to find the one. And He uses people to do it. That is so glorious. God didn't need Ananias you know that. We all know that. God didn't need Ananias to go pray for Saul. But God used Ananias. And may I say, God doesn't need us, but God uses us. And that is amazing to me, that we have the glorious privilege to be used by God in the work of God in other people's lives. And I remember as a new believer, when I first come to understand this, how wonderful that was to me. Because I thought, you know... I've spent so much of my life doing damage. I've, spent, I've wasted so much time. I've burnt so many bridges. I've hurt so many people. There's been so much fallout. And there's really not much I can do about that now. But what I can do move, moving forward 
is I could be used by God to love people, to serve people, to try to help bring comfort and healing to people as God does His work. And that became the cry of my heart, God, use me. God doesn't have to use me, but God wants to use me. And I want to be used by God. God doesn't have to use you, but I know that many of you want to be used by God. Amen? And God will use you. God is using you. And it's a glorious thing. And if you're not serving the Lord, get in the game. Be used by God. It's one of the most glorious privileges about being a Christian. Yeah, we're saved and we're going to be in heaven one day. That's great. But we're here right now and we have work to do. We've got to get in the game because God wants to use us in His work in His kingdom and His ministry. It's glorious. Alright, well verse 13. We're going to see Ananias is a little reluctant here. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now Ananias was scared, and understandably so. He was a little reluctant here. You know, sometimes God will ask us to do things that might scare us a little bit. Uh, there are times when God will call us outside of our comfort zones, right? And again, there's just so many of these things resonate with me, uh, and I'm taken back to just kind of the beginning of my walk with the Lord. And I've talked about this before with you guys, but that is a very real thing in the Christian life. God desires to take us out of our comfort zone. God wants to stretch us. God wants to use us. And in order to do, to do that, God will call us into places and situations where sometimes we don't necessarily want to be. And I just think of one in particular, you know, mission trips. We got this mission trip uh, to Ukraine. That might be a scary thing for some people. God might be moving on your heart to go and to serve Him in that way. I would want to encourage you to step out. Step out in faith. Trust the Lord. Get out of your comfort zone. There's a lot of opportunities right here in this church. We're always asking for people to step into the children's ministry or, or to serve in, in various areas. Maybe you are um, scared of people. Maybe you are shy, but you know... God might be calling you to be an usher-greeter. Something as simple as that. That scares you to death. But you know, God loves to pull you out of your comfort zone. That's what it's all about. We're not going to grow in a nice, safe, comfortable space. Right? If we're going to grow, if we're going to be made more like Christ, we've got to get out and we've got to get in a situation where the Lord can stretch us a little bit. So God was calling Ananias out of his comfort zone. He was calling Ananias to, uh, to trust him. You know, Ananias, he kind of reasoned with the Lord a little bit. He's like, I don't know about this, Lord. I mean, haven't you heard what, what this guy's been doing? I mean, I don't know if you know this, but he's kind of been persecuting the church, killing the Christians, so on and so forth. Um, and so God said, look, he's my chosen vessel. I want you to go. I, just, I love that he, he was able to reason with God and God reasoned with him. You know, God invites us to do that. Isaiah... 118 says, Come now, says the Lord, reason. Come and reason with me, says the Lord. And uh, that's so cool. Just a little side note there. God reasons with us. You know, we can be honest with God. If you're struggling, if you have doubt, whatever you may be feeling, you think God doesn't know that? 
You can just be very honest with God. You can be very real with God. You can say, God, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't think so. And back and forth. That was something that is so glorious to me. We don't have to pretend to be something that we're not. God knows everything. And so if you're doubting, if you're struggling, if you're angry, whatever the case may be, you can reason with the Lord. God invites you to do that. Share your heart. Be honest with God. And God will work with that. God will, will deal with, with you in that. He did that with Ananias. And He told Ananias, no, he's a chosen vessel for me. He is going to be an instrument for my glory. You see, Paul was uniquely qualified to glorify God. And Paul says as much in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. You know, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. I persecuted the church. But God showed mercy towards me. You know, because He knew that God was going to get a lot of glory out of Paul, out of Saul. With the kind of reputation that, that Saul had, and then the work that God was going to do in his life, God was going to be very glorified by that. And can I just say, God gets glory from us, guys. We are chosen vessels. And we are uniquely qualified to bring glory to God. Every single one of us in here, because we are all fallen men and women. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. From one level to another, we, we, we have all messed up and we know it. And so we are all uniquely qualified to experience the grace and the kindness of God and then to share it with others. You know, that was, that's one of the glorious things about creation, about mankind. There are certain attributes that God has, that Jesus has, that the angels were not qualified to glorify Him by because they were not fallen and redeemed. You know, our God is such a gracious and a merciful God. It takes a fallen people to be saved, to experience that grace and mercy, then to be able to praise and worship Him for it and to be able to share it with other fallen people. Amen? And we are all uniquely qualified for that work. How sweet is that? And so he said, Paul is a chosen, Saul is a chosen vessel of mine. And he says, besides, I want you to show him. I'm going to show him the things that he must suffer. Now, that's pretty heavy. You know, this is not Saul's best life now kind of stuff, you know. He didn't say, I want you to go and tell him how good he's going to have it now. He thought he was doing big things then, just wait. He's really going to, you know, it wasn't that at all. It was like, I want you to show him the things that he's going to suffer. And I've heard it said that, you know, he had an extraordinary level of perseverance, Paul did. And I've heard some people say it's because he knew exactly what he was stepping into. God made it very clear what He was calling him into. It wasn't a surprise or a shock to him. I don't know about that. But at any rate, um, I don't want to discourage anybody. It's a glorious thing to know the Lord. best decision I ever made in my life was to, to bow the knee and to come to Christ. And, and my life now, it's, oh man, never, never been better. You know? And I, I honor the Lord. Any good thing that I enjoy is a gift from God Himself, and I praise His name for that. You know, and I'm, I'm thankful for all the blessings in my life, but above all of that, I'm thankful for Him. It's a glorious thing to know the Maker, the Creator of heaven and earth, to know my loving Heavenly Father and to worship and serve Him, to enjoy Him forevermore, and to know that one day I'll stand before Him in glory and worship Him for all of eternity. This is wonderful stuff. But the church, this day and age, has become a place where the, the prevailing message is 
life improvement. That's what you're going to get. You come to the Lord, you're going to have a better life. You're going to be happier. You're going to be healthier. You're going to have wholeness and wellness. And, and it's all about self-improvement. And, you know, at the bottom, at the end of the day, bottom line, that just isn't the case so often. And that was not the case for, for Saul. And he said, you know, I found that all those things that I thought were great, I counted it as garbage. I counted it as rubbish next to the, the excellency of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. All right. So, verse 17, Ananias is going to go out in obedience to the Lord. So Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, sent me, uh, he sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So I love this. He says, Brother Saul. So there's your proof text. You know, I like to call everybody brother and sister and so on and so forth. That's something we especially do in the South. But here we see it in the Scriptures. Ananias comes up and says, Brother Saul. Um, this is also interesting to me because he calls him a brother. And so evidently, you know, Saul is, is a believer. He encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus. It seems as though he surrendered at that point. He called him Lord, said, what would you have me to do? And now Ananias comes to him and calls him a brother. But now he's going to pray and he's going to receive his sight and he's going to be filled with the Spirit. Once again, guys, I think this is very consistent as we follow this through. I have no doubt in my mind. His eyes have been opened. He is no longer dead in his trespass and sin. That he has the Spirit of God. That he knows the Lord. That he is a child of God. But now he's going to be prayed for and he's going to be baptized. He's going to be filled with the Spirit here. And so I have consistently preached that to you guys. That we believe in that. We need the filling of the Spirit. We need to regularly pray that God would pour His Spirit out on us. We need to be being filled as Ephesians 5 literally says in the Greek, be being filled with the Spirit. And so um, we don't lose the Spirit. We don't believe that the Spirit comes and then leaves us. But I don't know about you guys, I need as much as I can get. And I'm constantly crying out, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. Not only that, though, you know, how much of God, how much of us does God have? Conversely, right? I mean, we have God, but... How much of us has, has been surrendered over to the Lord? How much of us still needs to be crucified? How much of the old man still needs to die? But nonetheless, Paul was filled with the Spirit. He was Spirit and water baptized. And it's interesting here, we're told something like scales fell off of his eyes. I'm not exactly sure what that means. But something happened. Something fell off his eyes. And what we, what we kind of speculate here is that Paul had eye problems from this point moving forward. It kind of comes up throughout the Scriptures. I have it in your, your notes there. But um, it's possible when, when uh, Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh that God gave him, he prayed multiple times and God said, you know, my grace is sufficient for you. The thorn in the flesh he was referring to could be his eyes. Um, he was talking to the Galatian church in Galatians 4.15 and he says, you know, I, I realize you would, have, you would tear your own eyes out and give them to me if you could. So he kind of makes this reference to his eyes. 
And then Paul often had people write his letters for him, uh, an amanuensis, uh, we would call it. And sometimes when Paul's really trying to make a point, he would say, I'm writing this with my own hand, or I'm signing this here with my own hand, because he would ha- have people write his letters for him. We think he just couldn't, couldn't see very well. Seems, we believe, to stem back to this point. So, at any rate, he did receive his sight. He was filled with the Spirit, and he was baptized, water baptized. Again, very consistent through the Scriptures here. When people would put their trust in Christ, they would be baptized, water baptized right away. Right away. It was a big deal. You know, we, we um, have people here at the end of the service who will pray for you, whatever kind of need you may have. And we often say that, you know, we'll have people pray for you if you want to be uh, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. But, guys, if you haven't been water baptized and, and you know you need to be as a, in obedience to the Lord, I would encourage you to come up even pray and just say, you know, I want to be baptized. Let us know after the service uh, because we would love to, to baptize you. It's necessary as a, a believer. I won't get into that right now. All right, so moving on. Verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for the purpose, for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. So Saul had an immediate and radical change. And it is so cool when that happens, right? Sometimes there are just things that instantly change in a person's life when they come to Christ. Many of us in here have experienced that, and it's a glorious thing when it happens. It's wonderful when people are amazed by a changed life. It's so cool to see that. When you hear someone say, man, I knew that person before, and I can't even believe what they are like now. There has to be a God. This has to be true Truly, God is glorified in that. And we're told that uh, Saul increased in strength. You know, growing is a part of the Christian life. And this is what sometimes is the slow and long haul of the Christian life. There are certain things that change instantly when you come to Christ. And there are certain things that take years and years to overcome. And I think many of us in here could say, I mean, we understand that. Many of us in here know exactly what that's like. It's, it's just always an ongoing process. The Christian life, we are always growing. God is always taking us deeper. There is that long haul. There is that growth that is necessary. Alright, well moving in. We're going to start to pick up the pace now a little bit. Fourth point on your notes here, I put that God is preserving people. That's what God does. So, Saul is going to now become the persecuted Verse 23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Paul actually talks about this later on in 2 Corinthians 11.33. He refers to this very thing. It's fascinating because he lays out this long list of things that he has suffered. All the persecution, the beating, starvation, shipwreck. And then he says, on top of all of that, I'm overcome by my daily concern for the church. And then you go a little further, he brings this up. Seems to be something that really followed him. I don't know at this point if... uh, It just seems like this always stuck with him. Even though he's suffered so many horrible things, uh, he remembers this point right here very well, being let down in a basket 
to preserve his own life. I think maybe this is the point in which things kind of turn for him. He realizes, wow, I was the persecutor, now I'm the persecuted. Things are really changing for me. All that God told him would happen, that he would suffer, it's beginning. Well, verse 26, When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him into the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and he had spoken to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Now the disciples are skeptical. The disciples are a little bit afraid and understandably so. But Barnabas here lives up to his name. This is really cool. Barnabas means son of encouragement. That was what the disciples named him. That wasn't his actual name. He was given that name. And he is truly an encourager. God uses Barnabas to go and to vouch on behalf of Saul and to encourage the disciples to to trust what God is doing and to let down their guards and to invite Saul into the fold. Again, this is just another example of how God uses people and I don't know about you, I love encouragers. We've got a bunch of encouragers around here. And God uses them greatly in our lives. I want to be an encourager. That's something that it means a lot to me. I, I hope to be an encouragement to people like Barnabas is here. Alright, verse 29. There's going to be another attempt made on Saul's life. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenist, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So now Saul is duking it out with the Hellenists. We've already met this group. These were Jews who had been heavily influenced by the Greek culture. Now these guys want to kill Saul. So Saul escapes. He goes from Jerusalem to Caesarea to Tarsus. Now Paul's going to, Saul I should say, is going to disappear at this point. He's going to disappear for a number of years. Uh, remember the book of Acts covers about 30 years. And so he's going to come back into the picture in a, in a few chapters. We're getting ready to transition over to, um, to Peter. But notice with me in, the, in your notes here, there's a quote from Guzik. David Guzik. It says, uh, He was Saul of Tarsus, the young, successful, energetic rabbi. Then he was Saul the persecutor. Then Saul the blind. He became Saul the convert. And then Saul the preacher. Yet before he became Paul the apostle, he spent somewhere between 8 to 12 years as Saul the unknown. Those were not wasted years. They were good and necessary years. So he's going to go off into relative obscurity now for 8 to 12 years. And God's going to be doing a wonderful work in his life. And when he comes back, he's going to be Paul the Apostle, the great missionary and Scripture writer that we all know and love. And so I think that's just a good word for us. Sometimes we're very eager. Some people are very eager to get out there before the Lord would have them. And God's trying to, to do a work in your life. He's trying to, maybe as a new believer bring some maturity into your life and you just need to spend some time with God, alone with God. You know, God put Moses in the backside of a desert for 40 years. And so he was 80 years old when he actually stepped into his ministry going into Egypt and leading the people out. 
And so um, God seemed to do that with Saul. Undoubtedly, Saul served the Lord during this time where he was at, but he kind of drops off the scene. We're told that there was great peace and rest in the land at this time. And that makes sense now that Saul the persecutor is gone. And the, the Roman governor at that time would have, uh, would have been very strict. And with the, uh, the growing influence of Herod Agrippa, that really suppressed any uh, persecution that would be happening at that time. And so it was a time of peace and rest for the church. The church began to grow. All right, lastly, and we're going to move through this pretty quickly. This is the transition from Saul to Peter. We're going to be with Peter now for the next couple of chapters before we see the Apostle Paul step onto the scene. So verse 32, and I've titled this, God is working in various places. All right, verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of that country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. This guy, he's known as a certain man, probably an unbeliever, uh, because we're going to see here in a few verses that uh, in verse 36 it refers to a disciple and it's a certain disciple. So here it's a certain man. So it may be that he's an unbeliever. And um, I love how he says, Jesus the Christ heals you. I mean, they were very, very serious, very diligent about pointing to the Lord. Very Christocentric. Jesus was the center. Christ was the center of it all. It was always about the Lord. And you know, again, I've said this before, if a Spirit-filled church, church is a Christ-centered church. And I love how the apostles did not heap glory on themselves. They were always so quick to point to the Lord. And even here in this healing, as God is working, Peter says, Christ heals you. So as a result, all turned to the Lord, and there was a great revival there in Lydda and Sharon. All right, moving on, verse 36. At Joppa there were, uh, was a certain disciple... See, there's, now it's a certain disciple, so there's a distinction, named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. So now we see this disciple named Tabitha. She had a great reputation for caring for other people, and then she dies suddenly. By God's providence, Peter is nearby, and the, the disciples go, and they call upon Peter, and they ask him to come. So he does. Verse 39 then Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when she had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. So Peter shows up. He has come at their request 
to, to heal or to really bring this lady back to life. And we're told that there are these widows here, they're weeping and they're showing all of these garments and tunics that she had made for them. So truly she was a charitable woman, one who served and cared for the widows and they were weeping, they were very grieved. She really had a reputation of caring for other people. And Peter comes in and he says, Tabitha, arise, and she did. It was a, uh, an incredible miracle that is done there. God uses Peter to raise someone from the dead. And then we're told that many believed on the Lord. Many believed on the Lord. And that's something we consistently see happening as we move through this. God is moving. God is working. He is doing His thing. Regardless, you know, God's will is uh, transcendent. I've said that before. I'm so grateful for that. As I said, God is working. God is moving. He intervenes in the affairs of, of men and women. And I know that all of us in here, we desire that. We want to see God moving and working in our lives. And we know that God uses people to do that. And I know that we want to be used by God when He is working in people's lives. And God is changing lives. We've experienced it. We've seen how God changes our lives and I know that we desire that God would change us even more. Amen? And we want to see God changing other people's lives. God is preserving people just like He preserved uh, Saul here from his life. You know, I can think back to times before I was a believer that I believe God was reaching out to me, God was drawing me, but I believe that there were probably times that God even saved my life because He had a plan for my life. And He had a work for me to do. And even as a Christian, I can look back and think, man, there were times that God has saved my life. There have been times when God saved me for me, quite honestly, because God had a work. God had a plan. And I know many of us in here can relate with that. And then lastly, God's working all over the place. And that is glorious. God is working all around the world. God is working in this room. God is working all around our town, all around the bay, all around our nation. And that is our God. So, with that, let's close. Heavenly Father, we love You. Thank You for this uh, chapter of Scripture here that I know and trust has spoken to so many hearts. certainly has spoken to my own. I pray now as we wrap up the service, as we close with the song, that truly we would come before You with a heart of worship and gratitude. pray that You would uh, be honored and blessed pray for the people in this room, God. I know that You're moving in their hearts. I know that there are people here who don't know You, God. pray that You would uh, cause them to come forward and to receive prayer. That they would not be afraid. They wouldn't be concerned about what people think. But that they would be concerned about entering into a relationship with You and knowing You and loving You and walking in the fullness of that. For all the other needs and issues that are represented in this room, Lord, I pray that You would minister to, to the folks as we begin to close up the service. So we thank You, Lord, and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.